We've been looking at this chapter as it depicts the last leg of Paul's first missionary journey. And he's been going back to several cities that they uh, started the journey with and then going back, kind of tracing back through some of these uh, cities. The same cities that had rejected him, he and Barnabas are going back to visit. Paul's approach was to say yes to God for whatever God was asking him to do. Uh, Go back to Lystra? Are you sure? Yes. Okay, I'll do that. Now, why would he do this? Well, we looked at this last week, that he felt a a great indebtedness to God because of the grace of God that had been given to him. Now, remember, Paul is a guy that was killing or imprisoning Christians. And he came to Christ through a dramatic event on the Damascus Road. And so he was overwhelmed that God could love a guy like him And he felt this great indebtedness to what can I do now uh, to to serve Christ. So this is what he was doing. Uh, He was stoned in Lystra, but he was revived and goes back into the city to strengthen the saints. In Pisidia, a group of Jewish leaders came against him, created tremendous trouble, but he goes back to that region wanting to build up the body of Christ. Paul willingly suffered as a servant of Christ because he understood there was great benefit uh, not only to others, but also to himself, that God would reward him for his perseverance. So let's look at our passage. We're going to read it once again, Acts 14, 19 through 28. We're going to finish up this passage today. Let's all stand. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. When they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. I suppose when we read a chapter similar to Acts 14, we are prone to think that, you know, that was great to hear that wonderful story then, but, I mean, what does it have to do to us? Because I've never been stoned Okay, I've never really been physically accosted because of my faith, so what application does this have for me today? It's a fair question. But I would say that there are some things that do relate to us. For instance, we have to say yes 
to the Holy Spirit in calling us to obey the gospel, to believe the gospel, but also to communicate the gospel, just like Paul. And that may be costly. We have to say yes in accepting hardships in whatever form or fashion they may come as a way for God to work in me. Now, unfortunately, in many pockets, at least of the American church, there's the idea that the Christian life is all about, you know, victory away from trials and tribulations. That for those that God is working in, you're not gonna have these kinds of difficulties. And if you do, that's only a sign that you don't have enough faith. And it's easy for such Christians to to then blame Satan for any kind of hardship or mishap or sickness or difficult circumstance. And when we do that, I want to suggest that we get on a track of then trying to avoid hardship because we see it as injurious or destructive. And then we fail to see God's sovereignty in working in our lives in the midst of that hardship. We fail to see his power. Do you ever think that God could actually use Satan just like he did with Job in helping us, in teaching us? It's not like God is asleep at the switch. It's not like that when something happens, God is saying, oh, shoot, I didn't mean for them to go through that. God is the sovereign God of the universe. So he allows circumstances to strengthen us, to create opportunities for great reward, to have us love our enemies. And yet if we constantly see that hard times are nothing more than Satan's schemes, we're going to fail to see God's work. We're going to fail to see his will for our lives and suffering. So last week, we drew this comparison between taking a victim mentality versus seeing ourselves as servants of Christ. So by way of review, I just want to go over a couple of those points. Number one is a a victim sees those who oppose them as just enemies, and a servant of Christ sees them also as instruments of God. So a victim is going to constantly bemoan their circumstances, but the servant of God sees God at work and can be thankful. I mean, I'm constantly amazed at people in our fellowship who maybe go through cancer or lose a job or maybe go through a divorce, and, and they're, they're still using the opportunity to see God at work. Or one of our own last year was in our life group, lost a leg, and yet still was praising God for how God was working in his life. You know, we think, man, I I could never do that. Don't say never, because God will be there with you. God can strengthen you, and God gets great notice for how he works in our life in the midst of those uh, situations. Next is a victim sees themselves as powerless. A servant of Christ is secure and given power to love even an enemy. 
right? I mean, instead of considering how we're going to get back at an enemy or how we're going to set the record straight, we need to consider, all right, how might I love and bless my enemy? We talk about turning it on his head and allowing that bitterness to get out. A victim sees persecution as a hindrance. A servant of Christ sees persecution as a, great, uh, a gateway. So when I, I go through hardship, God is showing me my own inadequacies, and I can use that as an opportunity to express great faith in his power and his presence and in his promises in my life. So Paul was able to approach his endeavors as a servant of Christ and not a victim. And this enabled him to persevere through the trial. It enabled him to continue to be bold with the gospel, even though he was threatened. He expected trials. And part of equipping believers is adjusting the expectations so that we can have a proper perspective on trials. We read in verse 22, we read this last week, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You want to follow Christ? It's going to be hard. Yeah, I know. We want to read, it's your best life now. It's going to be awesome. And there are parts that are awesome and great. But there are difficulties. Christians still get sick, still lose jobs, still see relationships shatter. We have difficulties. And you still have enemies that come against you, especially because you're a follower of Christ. In fact, it will get worse. You want to follow Christ? Take up a cross. What does that mean? Accept the suffering. It's just a part of the gig. Is there joy? Yes. Is there peace? Absolutely. But not separate from those things, but in the midst of those things. Paul said in Philippians, he speaks of, sharing in the fellowship of Christ's suffering, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Becoming like him in his death. Means that we're going to have a death to our aspirations, a death to some of our dreams, to some of our desires that run counter to the kingdom of God, or God's will. Uh, I want you to notice that Paul did not say that I may know about him, speaking of Christ. He said that I may know him. Not just that I may know a set of doctrines apart from him, but I may know the person of Christ, who he truly has revealed himself to be, and that I may have a personal relationship with him. Now, there are different Greek words that can be used for know. Some are just kind of a, a head knowledge. I mean, I can learn calculus. Well, not, not me. I never learned calculus. But you could learn calculus, okay? <laughs> you could study geometry. You know, that I could do. 
But those are, that's a head knowledge, right? But that's not what Paul was seeking in Philippians 3.10, or at least it didn't stop with that. He wanted to know Jesus in a relational, personal, intimate sense. And he wanted this to affect his day-by-day living. How's that done? We could illustrate it this way. Let's say that you're a mountain climber, okay? You love mountain climbing. Have you ever seen a mountain climber take a helicopter to the top of a summit and then raise his hands and say, Woo, I did it! Look at me! That might make a good Instagram photo, but that is not the life of a mountain climber, right? Their ultimate purpose is conquest, not efficiency. Sure, they want to reach a goal, but they desire to do it by being tested. And that, by the way, deepens their character. They do it by discipline and resolve. In the same way, a person does not automatically become a scientist or a mathematician or a musician. No, they have to start somewhere and then grow and discipline themselves to where they can arrive at a certain maturity in one of those roles. Likewise, God does not make us fully Christ-like the moment we're born again. We become conformed to the image of Christ gradually. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit of God is working in us step by step. Every time I say yes, every time I express faith in God in that moment, depend upon Christ, God is working in us in what the Bible calls that sanctification, that work of making us more like Christ. And we mature, we improve, we excel at handling failures and trials, and we learn from it. Only in cultivating Discipline, endurance, and patience do we find this maturity. And I would add satisfaction and reward. I mean, I've used this illustration multiple times, but it bears repeating. Jen and I will have been married 39 years at the end of this year. And where are we at now compared to when we started? Hopefully, we've learned a lot. Hopefully, the marriage is better. I think I can say that. Can you say that, honey? I think our marriage is better than when we started. Yeah, we've learned some things, okay? Nothing like putting your wife on the spot in the middle. You better say yes. (laughs) She could yell, I've learned to live with the creep. And yeah, he's a... (laughs) This is developed, and it's been developed through hard times, through failures, through trials, and we grow. And we learn, and we hopefully are humbled, and and our love expands, our maturity grows. God uses the suffering in our life in such a way that we grow 
inch by inch. When Paul speaks of knowing Christ in Philippians, it includes content of the brain, but it's more than that. It's to enter into a deep, personal communion, contact, intimacy. For instance, when the Bible says that Adam knew Eve, it's not because the Bible is too shy to speak of sexual matters. They use that terminology because it's the kind of knowledge that is not just expressed in sex, it's expressed in a deep, intimate union. It's much more than a sexual experience. It's a, it's a physical, it's an emotional, it's a spiritual intimacy and union that you enjoy. And sex is merely a picture of that. Consequently, knowing Christ takes us down a road of maturity and deep intimate union. And listen, that kind of deep union only comes by suffering. It only comes through trials. There is no microwave Christianity. Read this book. Go through these six steps. Tomorrow, ding, 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 I'm mature. No. It is a long process of God molding us, squeezing us. And that means suffering. That means trials. That means hardship. We are participating in this process through suffering that otherwise, listen, it would be impossible to know Christ at that level without the suffering. And unfortunately, there are many Christians and sometimes their theology helps them to this and I don't mean that in a good way. They never mature because they see all that stuff you know, the, the, the trials or, you know, sickness or hardship. I got to avoid all that. That's all a tool of Satan. Instead of seeing that God can mold us, can use that to help us grow in our walk with Christ. So we, we participate in this suffering. We, we know the fellowship of his sufferings. We grow close to Christ through the sufferings. That's a way to say that. So what's unique about the suffering? What can happen in the midst of the suffering? Well, suffering brings eternal reward. Right? This isn't exhaustive, but I just want to throw some of these out. Uh, Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 1 Peter 4.13, But to the degree uh, that you share the sufferings of Christ... Keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Suffering also brings unique comfort from Christ. When I suffer, I know a sense of his comfort and peace that I otherwise would not know. 2 Corinthians 1.5 says, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. And then Hebrews says, For since he himself was tempted and that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So we learn this, this rescuing that God does of us in the midst of those trials. I don't know how many times I have been struggling with something in the Lord. 
struggling with a relationship, struggling with a situation, and I'll be there with my Bible open, you know, my journal, which is an iPad, and I'm sitting there, and I'm struggling with a passage, and I'm praying to God, and, and it's like, it's not an audible voice, but it's like it just something opens up in my heart, and, and usually it's this, short, you are so narrow and such a jerk. That's usually what I get out of that. All right. All right. Usually that's where it ends up being. But, you know, I'm, I'm trying to escape, or, or I see things, you know, just from my perspective, and God just opens it up, and I'm like, oh, yeah. But that, I wouldn't have gotten there otherwise except by going through the trial and then allowing the Spirit of God to speak to me in the midst of that. And he gives me comfort, right? I mean, much of the help that I get with the trials and the problem is defining what the problem is. And I may not have any answer what it's going to look like tomorrow. I just know he helped me today. And that can get me to tomorrow, right? Two of you know what that's like, and I'm glad about that, all right? (laughs) Suffering can bring unique opportunity also for Christ to work in and through you. 2 Corinthians 1.6 says, but if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Paul said in 2 Timothy, persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. That doesn't mean he escaped the persecutions. That means God was there. He didn't give up. He endured. He persevered. And then in Hebrews, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering. I see God working in through me. I never knew I could go through that. And look at what God has done. And then suffering brings unique assurance of God's presence. 1 Peter 4.14 says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. There is a, a unique sense of God's presence when others make an enemy of you because of the gospel. It's a unique sense of God working in and through you. Popular author and speaker Brene Brown described a breakdown that she had that propelled her to go back to church. And in an interview, she said this, and I quote, I definitely went back to church for all the wrong reasons. I really went because this is hard and this hurts. And in all the midlife unraveling books, they say, go back to church. That's what everybody does. So I went back to church, thinking that it would be like an epidural, like it would take the pain away, like I would just replace research with church. You know, the church would make the pain go away. And then I discovered that faith and church was not like an epidural at all. It was like a midwife who just stood next to me and said, push, it's supposed to hurt. (laughs) Now, guys, let me just give you a tip. Don't say that to your wife in the middle of the birthing, all right? You will get hit, all right? 
Verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, remember that Paul had visited these places before and then comes back. And so there's a, there's a period of time in which these people could be tested. And he returns to appoint leaders called elders. The church is both an organism and an organization. Too much organization can snuff the organism out. It can kill the life of the church. But little or no organization can cause the church to fall in on itself. There has to be a balance. There has to be just enough organization to facilitate a healthy life of the church, of the body. And establishing elders was a first step for Paul in creating some organization and leadership. You know, many folks have a view of life in the church that it should be free of any organization, as if all organization is constraining and suffocating and installing leadership and some form of membership are the leading targets of this institutional avoidance with the church. And I hear stories all the time of this group over here, this group over there, trying to do that. Don't want to call anybody a leader. Can't have any membership, blah, blah, blah. And I've never seen it to be sustainable. There has to be some organization to facilitate the organism. Now, I'm I'm not advocating one system over another. I'm just saying you need some organization, whatever that looks like. But I would say this, considering the past conflicts that I'm sure we've all been a part of or issues that we see in churches, it's very understandable that some would take this anti-institutional kind of of view or anti-organization, I should say. But it's kind of that proverbial baby bathwater scenario, is it not? Be careful what you wish to eliminate within the body of Christ. Chuck Swindoll says, misunderstanding organization in the church, that's the cause of most church splits. Gene Getz, the founder of the Fellowship Bible Church movement and one of my instructors in graduate school, said that most problems in the church are a result of neglecting this area of organization within the church. Kenneth Gangle is considered the Dean of Christian Education, says that the leadership structure of the church is the genius of the New Testament. Now, certainly we have to come to this topic with our eyes open, right? Now, I've been a pastor here for over 30 years, and the lion's share of my experience with leaders has been great, okay? Excellent leaders. But I've also experienced a small group that are narrow and irascible as well. But because there have been negative experiences, doesn't mean you throw out the whole idea of leaders or you throw out the whole idea of having organization. The term elder signifies a person with experience, not a person completely green to spiritual matters or 
or leadership. The Bible actually uses three words when describing the same person in leadership or the same office. It refers to elder, pastor, and overseer, three different Greek terms. They emphasize a different aspect of the same position. For instance, in Titus 1, verses 5 and 7, we see elder and overseer used together. Or in 1 Peter 5 and Acts 20, all three words are used together. Okay? So overseer, that stresses the authority or oversight of the leaders. In other words, they give direction, vision to the church. It doesn't just come from them, but they're to take leadership of that. Elders speak of the wisdom and maturity of the leaders. In other words, the the elder is to have a a certain amount of of moral authority because we, we see the life that is lived and there's a respect there so that when that person speaks into the life of another, people listen. And then you have elder, you have overseer, and then there's pastor. The term pastor connotes a feeding and protection by the leaders. It conveys a doctrinal and behavioral boundary for the church. And by the way, Paul mentions in in 1 Timothy 5.22, do not be hasty in laying on hands of another person. In other words, when you're putting, putting a person in leadership, consider these roles. Consider whether this person demonstrates some of these Some of the other responsibilities of elders in the scripture, they're to pray for the sick in James 5. Uh, They're to teach the word of God. They're to protect the flock from doctrinal error. I mean, think of that. That you have people that are supposed to be at the gates to make sure that there's not false teaching in the church. Okay? And that's that's a hard gig today, especially when Doctrine is just basically thrown out the door. It shouldn't matter. All that matters is, you know, we hug and love each other. Nothing wrong with loving each other. You speak the truth in what? In love. There's parallel tracks. Truth, love. One without the other leads to some kind of exaggerated expression. So elders help to protect the flock. Next, they ordain others into ministry. They incorporate Church discipline, boy, that's not fun. And then manage the overall affairs of the church. All of these are jobs of the leaders. Now, notice how they're chosen, okay? It doesn't actually give us a prescription of a specific way, you know, where you vote or they're chosen by the existing elders. It doesn't give us exact notation about how that's done, but it does say this. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. With prayer and fasting. You cannot have somebody blow into the church and expect to lead without an obedience, a long obedience in the same direction, to steal a phrase from Eugene Peterson. But even with that observation, even with that some kind of organization like that, Each congregation has to be resolute in taking time to pray because you may not see everything in an individual that you want to lead. And so as you take time to pray, God will 
confer in unison with those other people, yes, go ahead with this person. Or no, you know, there might be a, a check in somebody's spirit. So every, every church has to choose some kind of system that they use when selecting leaders, but whatever system they choose, what should be present in all of them is prayer and fasting. That implies that this is going to be a slow process, okay? We're to listen to what God may be saying. We're to observe. We're to pray. We're to fast. We listen some more. And only after a time of reflection should a church move ahead. And I'd say, in our case, it takes usually eight to nine months from the time a name first comes up to a time that the process is completed because we take it very seriously about this person being in in leadership. And we reflect and we pray. And by the way, the qualifications for these leaders you find in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And every one of them have to do with character traits. It has nothing to do with economic status. It has nothing to do with popularity. It has to do with the character of the individual. Right? Let's move on. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. So after visiting several cities, they finally arrived back in Antioch of Assyria, and that was the church that originally sent them off. And our passage says that these were the ones who commended them to the grace of God. So they were accountable to preach the grace of God. They commend, this is the job you have to do. Give this gospel to Jew and Gentile. Show them that the grace of God is is awesome and great. So regardless of background or religion or race, let them know that all may come and know this God through Jesus Christ. And what a message that still remains for us today. But there is a There's a situation here where there's a reporting back to the church. And I know that, you know, if you grew up in the church, you might remember missionaries coming and giving a report. And usually it was with a slide projector, and many, I'm sure, in the crowd were, and that's at the beginning of the presentation, okay? Right? We just think of it as some kind of perfunctory task. Let us not view it that way. Here's the church at Antioch, and Paul and Barnabas show up, and they share how they traverse 700 miles by land, 500 miles by sea. It took almost two years, and they're sharing story after story of how God used them to express his grace and how others came to Christ. Paul says, yeah, and and they stoned me in Lystra. And they're like, what? But God revived me, went back in. Still others came to Christ. Now, you hear stories of what God is doing in other lands. What does that do to you? Doesn't that encourage you? Doesn't that like 
man, you know what? Look at how powerful the gospel is. They, they presented the gospel. They demolished this wall between Jew and Gentile. You know, God's grace can do anything without preaching, but preaching can do nothing without God's grace. Their emphasis is upon what God has accomplished. Paul and Barnabas made no attempt to claim credit for themselves. They are merely conduits, agents through whom God works. And such an approach indicates a a total reliance upon God. They took the time to thank the church that had sent them and given them this opportunity to go. Let us not short-circuit that process. Let us elevate that and honor that for how it should be. I remember our church giving a significant amount of money to one particular individual who was not a part of our regular mission team. It's kind of a special project. And uh, sent away the check. Long time had passed, a couple months, never heard a thing. Three months passed, I finally contact this individual. I go, hey, did you get the check that we sent? Yeah, I got it. Okay, just making sure. Kind of, that was the only communication, basically. So I called his superior, who I knew, and I said, listen, I just want to let you know that, you know, we've got a church body who gave generously to this individual, and we heard nothing, Okay. Now, I'm not upset because I have to be thanked, but I want to report back to our church body how they gave generously, and they deserve a report for how this money's being used and what God is doing as a result. And we got none of that. I take that seriously. I think it's a stewardship. And I can't, honestly, and by the way, that is such a unique situation. That's the only time I can remember that happening. All of our missionaries have been very gracious, very, you know, uh, grateful, thankful for what God has done, and I, and I appreciate that. But I just can't compute in my head, you give somebody a significant amount of money, and they're just like, all right, I don't get that. To me, that's some kind of sense of entitlement or something going on in the heart that's just not healthy. But when it's, when it's healthy, when it's right, when it's working, there's this, you know, simpatico relationship. There's a, the missionaries who are sent out, who are blessed, who are held accountable, and there's a, there's a church who's behind them, and then they report back to the church somehow, some way, and now with all the other ways that we have a communication, there's no excuse for missionaries not communicating, and all of ours do that great, so thank you. God bless you to our missionaries. I think it's incredible how this section in Acts 14 on suffering, on all these hardships that Paul had, ends with Paul and Barnabas giving a report, thanking God for what he had done. Great gratitude for how God worked. I think it's very appropriate to end this section on suffering with this. There's a journal of personality and social psychology that published an interesting study, researchers formed three groups. There was, in one group, major lottery winners, okay? Then there were, I don't know how they thought of these three groups, but this is what it was. Yeah, I read it on the internet, so it's got to be true, all right? 
major lottery winners. Secondly, paralyzed accident victims, okay? And then a control group of random individuals. They were asked a, a battery of questions regarding their past, present, and future happiness. And here's what the researchers found. First of all, no surprise, the lottery group rated winning as a very high positive experience. Really? Okay, that's, thanks for spending thousands of dollars to give us that insight, all right? And, then, and the, the accident group, okay, ranked victimhood as a very negative uh, thing. Again, no surprise. But what was surprising is that the lottery winners took significantly less pleasure in daily activities, you know, like buying clothes, than the members of the other two groups. I mean, the lottery winners were no happier than the random control group or the paraplegic and quadriplegic accident victims. They expressed far more happiness in undertaking life's daily activities than those who were recently rich. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. You go through hard times. You appreciate the simple things, right? You can appreciate not taking for granted, like having clothes or putting on your pants or shirt or whatever, things that you daily do, feeding yourself, small things, daily things. Lord, thank you that I'm able to do this. Thank you for what you have given me. Thank you for this day that I am drawing breath. And every day, I'm to be a steward of my time, my treasure, and my talent. And so, I thank you. Let me suggest that suffering helps us appreciate the life that we have and helps us to enjoy each and every day as a gift. Let's pray.